morning, you guys. Good to see all of you today. I'm so glad to worship the Lord with you. Can't believe it's almost Christmas here. And much to be thankful for, much to praise God for. If you have your Bible with you, please turn to John chapter 17, verse 1. In this passage here, Jesus has just been uh, with his disciples at the Last Supper. They've finished their meal, and um, it's about 16 hours before his death on the cross at this point. And over the course of this meal with the disciples, he's told them at least six times to pray to God in his name and to ask him to do great things for his glory and for the joy of the world. So he tells them six times, pray, 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 okay? And now he closes their time together with a prayer. And all of John 17 is one big prayer that Jesus prays to God the Father. And the prayer is divided into three main sections. He prays first for himself, and then he prays for the disciples, and then he prays for all Christians who would ever live. And I had high hopes of preaching today on verses one through five, uh, where Jesus preaches for himself, but I got so caught up with just verse one uh, that that's as far as I made it. So we're gonna pull a Martin Lloyd-Jones today and look at verse one. One great verse, John 17, 1. And before we do that, let's ask the Lord to help us. Thank you, Lord, for this time we have together. We thank you for your love for us and for this time of year, this Christmas season, where every light we look at, we want to remind us that you are the light of the world. Every nativity scene we look at, we want to remember that you have come for us to defeat sin. And so as we open your word, we ask that you would be our living bread today and feed our souls. Please use this to do whatever you want in each of our lives. Just help us to glorify you, to trust you more, and to love others better. We ask that you would please protect us from the evil one, from our flesh. Bless those next door and in the nursery as well. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So let's go ahead and read John 17, 1 to 5, uh, so we can get the context, and then we'll focus on the first verse. John 17, 1, Jesus says, or it says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world Existed. And again, John 17, 1, it says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. This is the Word of God. 
So we're going to ask three questions about this verse. First, why does Jesus pray? Second, what is Jesus asking for? And third, who is Jesus to ask for this? Okay. So first, why does Jesus pray? It, it's fascinating to read all throughout the Gospels that Jesus often withdrew to quiet places and prayed. So it was a priority for him. Now, if, if you're unfamiliar with the God of the Bible, then it might be tempting to read this and conclude that since Jesus prayed to God, that's what it says, then he obviously must not be God. After all, if Jesus were God, then wouldn't he just be praying to himself? Right? That's what it looks like. Or was he praying to a different God than himself? Well, passages like today's passage are really helpful here because it says that Jesus prays to his Father. And this points us to what God shows us about himself all throughout Scripture. First, that he is the one true God. There is no other God. There's not even two gods. There's not three gods. There's one God who exists, and he rules over everything, and he created everything. And, and from the very first chapter of the Bible to the days of Moses, to the days of David, to the days of Jesus, to the days of the early church, all of the Bible consistently testifies that there's one God and that this God exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. We read of all three in the Old Testament and New Testament. And so we say that God is three in one. When you hear about the Trinity, that's what it means. He's sometimes called the Godhead. He's three in one. And this is an essential of the Christian faith. This is not an optional belief. And so when Jesus prayed during his life on earth, he was praying both as God, because he was God, and he's also praying as a man, which he became when he came to earth. And John 1, 1 says it this way, in the beginning was the Word, Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God, okay? God likes to rock our minds, okay? This is one of those things where we can't, I believe it, I don't get it, but I believe it, okay? And if I got it, that would make me God, okay? I'm not God. So I just, I trust you, God. That you've existed with the Father since the beginning, and you are God. And he says specifically, he's God the Son. And so when Jesus prayed to or talked to God the Father during his life on earth, he was showing us the kind of relationship that um, he has with his heavenly Father. Okay? Uh, they, they love each other, obviously. They're close to each other. That's why he's constantly talking to them. They abide in each other is what Jesus says. They, they like to be together. And, and, and also when Jesus is praying, he's modeling for us then the kind of relationship that we can now have with the Father if we trust in Jesus. And that's possible because on the cross, Jesus took away the barrier of sin that separated us from the Father. And, and on the cross, Jesus gave us his righteousness what which brings us into the Father's presence. And this means that in Jesus, we are now close to the Father too, okay? We abide in the Father too. We can talk to the Father too. Jesus has already made this a spiritual reality 
in the invisible realms which we can't see. And so in our lives, we want to just lean into what is already true of us, that we go to the Father because we're already with the Father in the throne room because of Jesus. Isn't that awesome? And so when Jesus prayed during his earthly life, he showed us this kind of relationship that God has with him and that he wants with us. It's the kind of friendship with God that you and I were created for. And it's the kind of friendship that thankfully we can now have in Jesus through faith in him. Now, notice here, this is interesting though, notice at what point this prayer occurs. Okay? From what we've read about this dinner over the past several chapters, what is the mood among Jesus and the disciples? Well, John 13, 21 says that Jesus was deeply troubled in his spirit, okay? Because he knew he was going to be betrayed soon. He knew he was going to suffer unimaginably physically and spiritually very soon. Also, we read that the disciples are filled with sorrow. They're depressed because Jesus was leaving them very soon. And so this is a stressful time together, okay? This is a troublesome time. This is a sorrowful time for Jesus and the disciples. And so what does Jesus do about it? He prays, okay? Notice that. He doesn't try to run away from the situation. He doesn't change his circumstances, though he could have. He doesn't fight anybody to get out of what he knows is coming to him. He stops at this first sign of trouble, and he takes a chunk of time to pray to the Father. The first half of 17.1 says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. He said, Father, the hour has come. And we know that whenever we read about this hour in John's gospel, he's always talking about the hour of his trial and death and resurrection that was coming. And so here what we have is Jesus peering down into the grand canyon of hell that is waiting for him, okay? He's anticipating the depth of sin that he must bear very soon. And he's anticipating this horrific punishment that he will soon endure to save you and me. But he doesn't keep his eyes down forever. He says he looks up. He looks up to the Father, and he keeps his eyes on the Father, and he asks the Father for help. You guys, when we are deeply troubled, when we are sorrowful, when we are scared, we've got to follow Jesus' example and turn our eyes to God and pray to him. Okay? Because we need his help. It's not merely a matter of, I would like God to assist me in this. Like you need God's help. I need God's peace in this because I don't have it in me. And it doesn't help us in our moments of fear to do what Satan and our flesh and the world tells us to do, which is to work ourselves up, get scared, scare ourselves into what-if thinking. It doesn't help us to try to pretend that we're not hurting. It doesn't help us to believe that our problems will eventually go away if we if we just drug ourselves with our drugs and with our different idols of choice, it doesn't even help us to try to fix our problems without asking God to help first. See, we need God. And so when we're praying, 
man, what we're saying is, God, I can't do this. <laughs> you can, though. And so when the act of praying is focusing our thoughts and our hearts onto the living God, onto his word, the truth of his word, and asking for the Holy Spirit's power to help us because he is the source of help that we really need. He is. And thankfully, because he's so compassionate, he freely offers this to us. He offers himself and all of his resources to us if we'll just turn to him and trust in him. But it is hard to do. We, we, we can't even turn to him on our own. We've got to say, God, please help me turn to you. Before you help me with the problem, please help me to turn to you to get help for the problem, right? This is why a lot of times when we have problems, you know, I don't know about you, but say you've got a problem and you want to give it to the Lord. What happens when you give it to the Lord? It's like, falls right back, right? Because I'm pulling it back. It's like, so God, please help me to keep giving this to you. The idea in scripture, he says, cast all your anxieties. Throw them out like you're throwing a fishing line. Throw them out. Throw them on God. And don't reel it back in. Let God have it. Jesus, an encouraging thing here is Jesus was God. We know that. He was also a man. Okay? And so what that means is he knows how you and I feel in our anxiety and in our fear what we read in scripture what he does here how he dealt with this was by praying to the father and it's the exact same instruction that Paul tells us in Philippians 4 do not be anxious about anything but in everything in prayer and petition bring your request to God and then the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds of Christ Jesus right? same thing it's counterintuitive though for us who like to do stuff Right? That's religion speaking. That's not faith speaking. Jesus tells us to trust him. And that's what he does. And he prayed to God so that he would keep his eyes on what mattered most on, on God. And he, he prayed so that he would be empowered by the Holy Spirit to do what he needed to do, to take one step forward at a time, and by his grace to show us and model for us what we should do too. Okay, let's get to the second question over here now. What is Jesus asking for? If you read verses one through five, in everything that Jesus asks God the Father to do, he only asks for one thing. He has one request, and it's, Father, glorify your son. That's that, that word glorify, that's his only request. Glorify your son. So what is it exactly is he asking the Father to do? He says, this is what his prayer is, okay? He says that he is the Son. So what he's saying is, Father, in the midst of this, glorify me. You glorify me. What does that mean? It's not a normal prayer, okay? So let's begin by defining a few terms. Let's, let's start with the word glory. Okay? One definition of glory is this. Excellence on display, okay? So glory for God is not one of his attributes. It's all of his attributes on display. See that? So glory, you could say, is excellence on display. So maybe, maybe you 
have experienced glory when you are watching an artist create something beautiful. Or maybe you're watching a basketball game and somebody does an incredible move or play and everybody on the benches, they can't help themselves. They step up and all these guys are like, oh my goodness, did you see that, right? They're like, they can't believe it. Or maybe you're on the beach and you're looking out at the water and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this whale comes up and breaches and you look at it and what do you say? That is glorious. That's how we describe these things. And when we do that, what we're doing is glorifying these things that we consider glorious. We're acknowledging these things and pointing to these things that those are glorious things. And so on an infinitely bigger scale, Jesus here is asking God the Father to acknowledge and point to the fact that Jesus, God's Son, is glorious. He's asking the Father to point to him as glorious and breathtaking and awesome and worthy of all praise. Now who prays for that, right? Who asked the Father to glorify him? I mean, with everything Jesus is about to endure, why not just pray, God, please help me because I do not want to suffer your wrath for sinners. I think that might be a prayer we would pray. Or why not pray, God, I changed my mind. I don't want to go to the cross anymore. You can bring me back to heaven right now. We'll figure out a different game plan. Right? Or why not just pray, God, get rid of the people. Things were good before they were here. Right? They hate you. They don't want you. They don't want me. They hate me. Destroy them again. So we don't have to deal with them anymore. And he could have prayed any of these prayers, and you know what? He would have been totally justified. He would not have been evil in praying that. He could have abandoned us to the sin that we've chosen over him, and he would have been guilty of no wrongdoing, but he didn't do that. Instead, he says, Father, make my name famous. Point to me as glorious and majestic and worthy of praise. Lift me up high for everybody to see that I am more valuable and wonderful than anything else in their lives or that they'll ever find in this universe. Now to understand this better, to understand this nature of lifting him up that, that, that Jesus is asking the Father to do for him, we have to understand how Jesus was first brought down. How he was first humiliated. Because when we talk about the mission of Jesus, it has two parts. His humiliation, his humbleness, and then his exaltation. And he, let's talk about his humiliation first. How he was brought down in at least three ways. First of all, he was brought down, he was humiliated when he abandoned his heavenly glory. Okay. We read in Philippians 2 that before coming to earth... Jesus emptied himself. He let go of the divine glory and majesty that he had in heaven for the purpose of becoming a slave for us. 
So it doesn't mean that Jesus stopped being God when he took on human flesh. It means that he gave up his divine right to use all of his divine qualities while he was on earth. And so he humiliated himself in the process. He abandoned his glory in heaven. And second, Jesus was brought down when he was born into this world. This is part of what we're celebrating in Christmas is that this is the core of what we're celebrating at Christmas, that Jesus was humiliated for our sake. He was literally born into the pigsty of our filth, of our sin, which was something completely foreign to him. He was surrounded his whole life by rejection, by us, by wickedness. And then all of this, his earthly life crescendoed with him becoming our filth on the cross and then being punished for our sin. And then third, Jesus was brought down into death. He was brought down to death and then he was buried into a tomb. And so this Jesus who says he was the light of the world died and he was wrapped in garments and then he was laid in the darkness. And sometimes, you know, when we're watching wrestling matches or boxing matches and one of the athletes gets knocked down on the mat, you'll hear the announcers say, he's down, ladies and gentlemen. But most time that eventually, that, that athlete will get up. Well, Jesus was not just knocked down momentarily. He was knocked down into death. Okay? He was not mostly dead. Like Miracle Max says in The Princess Bride. Okay? He didn't merely faint on the cross like other religions teach. Because you have to, as a thinking person, make something of Jesus, right? If you're not a Christian, you have to say something happened on the cross. So one of the theories is that he didn't really die, he fainted. But we know that his body was lifeless. We know that historically that's just not a responsible argument. Because he was so dead, it says that the executioners decided not to break his legs on the cross because it was so obvious that he was dead. And they speared him in the side just to verify it. The reality is Jesus had no pulse. His humiliation was complete when they placed his body in the tomb, rolled the stone back over it, sealed it shut. And so when Jesus prays to God the Father in this verse, he knows that all of this is about to happen. He, he knew that his humiliation would be finished, that it would be fulfilled. And so he prays that the Father would counter his humiliation with exaltation. Okay? He asked the Father to glorify him. God, don't let me stay down. Lift me up. And just like Jesus was humiliated in at least three ways, we read that he was also asking the Father to lift him up in at least three ways. First, he was asking the Father to glorify him when he was physically lifted up on the cross. Okay? Jesus said several times in the Gospel of John that his glory would be displayed when he was lifted up on the cross. And so <laughs> this is what God does. He doesn't do things the way we do things. He takes the most inglorious device of man, the cross, and he uses it to point out that Jesus is the most glorious treasure in the universe. The cross.
cross of Jesus is glorious to those of us who believe, and it is inglorious to those who don't. And second, Jesus was asking the Father to Hello, hello. Do you want to switch? Okay. So Jesus was asking the Father to lift him up from the dead. Jesus' prayer to the Father was to breathe life back into his lifeless body to make his heart start beating again and his blood to start pulsing through his veins again and then to cause Jesus to rise in glory to break out of that dark tomb as the light of God that he told the world he was. That's a big prayer. And then third, Jesus was asking the Father to lift, lift him up back into heaven again. His plan wasn't to stay on earth and to continue to preach and teach and heal. His, he, he wanted the Father to point him out as praiseworthy by lifting him up back into heaven. He was asking God to lift him up physically in the presence of many witnesses into heaven so that he could be there exalted for eternity. This is what Jesus was asking God to do when he prayed, glorify your son. I'll take this off. So it brings us to our third question now about John 17, 1, which is, who is Jesus to ask for this? When you really think about what Jesus is asking here, what he's asking for, it seems extremely presumptuous and arrogant from a worldly point of view. Because as outsiders looking in, what you see here is, I mean, think about this. If you're a Christian, get into the mind of a non-Christian, okay? You see here a human being praying to God and asking him to do something in him that is impossible according to the laws of science. And he's not just asking for a miracle here. He's asking for the miracle of all miracles, something that no human being has ever done. He's bringing himself back from the dead. And not only is he asking for the miracle of all miracles, but he wants his resurrection to happen in a way that the world sees him and points to him as worthy of their praise and as the most important and supreme being in the universe and not only does Jesus want to be glorified, but he wants to be lifted up into heaven and to receive glory forever. He wants not a temporary glory. He wants a glory that never ends. He wants everything, everywhere to look at him and say, he is truly amazing. There is no one else like him. He really is better than everything else. That's what he's asking for. And this is what he prays for. And so what this does is, you guys, this. It forces us to make a judgment about Jesus. Either he really is God. He really is perfect. He really is so incredible that he really deserves all of our worship for all of eternity. Or else he is really messed up. I mean, if he is just a man... And he's in his right mind, then that means he is egotistical, he's arrogant, he's one of the most self-centered men in existence. 
Because you and I know that nobody is perfect and no human being deserves to be worshipped as a god. And Jesus was just a man, then this prayer also proves that he was a liar. Because he refuses, because uh, he, well, he refers to himself as the Son, the Son of God. Well, if he calls himself the Son of God, but he really isn't the Son of God, then he's a liar. And if that's true, then you definitely cannot call him a good teacher. You can't play that card. You can't say, Jesus was a good man. He was a loving teacher. I like some of his teachings. He did teach a lot of lies to his followers, who also happened to be the most... Uh, Silly people for believing him because he was truly the most narcissistic person the world has ever known, but I like to call him a good teacher. It doesn't work. It's not, it's not a logical argument. But if he really was the most narcissistic, praise-seeking man that ever lived, then it doesn't make sense that he chose to be homeless. He chose to have no political influence. He chose to live with the poor. He chose to reveal his greatest truths to people whose testimonies weren't even credible in court. He chose to die the most shameful death possible, even when Pontius Pilate tried to give him an out. It's not possible, you see, to make the argument that Jesus was merely a self-centered man and a, a teacher. That doesn't make sense. And so another option then would be that Jesus really did believe these things about himself, but he was mentally ill. He wasn't there in the head. And you would have to make the argument that he was totally delusional. You'd also have to prove, you would have to prove, that hundreds upon hundreds and thousands upon thousands of people who followed him were also delusional because they didn't merely follow him, but they claimed to witness him perform miracle after miracle, um, these things that were scientifically Impossible. And you'd also have to make the argument that this mentally ill and delusional man was somehow coherent enough to never lose a philosophical or logical argument against any of the greatest minds of his time. <laughs> this is one of the most amazing things. When you read through the lens of a debater or a philosopher, you read Jesus, he never lost an argument. He never loses. He's always right. He, he dumbfounded everybody with his mental acuity, his logic. They tried to trap him, we read, over and over again with these hypothetical moral dilemmas. And every time he knows how to escape their traps because he was smarter than they were. And this is why even in secular institutions, students study Jesus to learn how to debate and to understand philosophy. So it's just not possible to argue that the greatest human mind ever to live was also one of the worst human minds ever to live. Because from the standpoint of psychology and philosophy and sociology, Jesus was not a delusional man. <laughs> one of the things I love is the key textbook that most university state schools are using for psychology 101, which a lot of students have to go through, is written by Rodney Stark, who's a Christian man. And it's just true. It's like he's a very logical thinking. He's a professional psychologist. And he's like, you can't make the argument from psychology or from sociology that Jesus was mentally ill or delusional. He prayed to God the Father here, and he asked him 
to give the world a huge view of himself. But in doing so, he did not have an inflated image of himself. He was not egotistical. He was not self-centered. He wasn't a liar, and he wasn't delusional. And there are a few other arguments people make. We don't have time to get into that. Some will say he was an alien. Others will say, you know, you can always play the card. The Bible wasn't true. Okay, we can get there. But also, then you have to deal with the historical sources outside of the Bible that said, that verified the Bible. But at the end of the day, this is what we do. We ask God to show, him, him, show us himself in Scripture. And we see that Jesus prayed to God the Father, asked him to show off God's Son as the most glorious treasure the universe has ever known because this is what it points out. That's who Jesus really is, okay? So when you have small views of Jesus and of God, throw them out the window because this is what, you see, glorifying God's Son is what's right. It's right for the Father to glorify the Son. It's not a prayer request to the Father to bend over backwards and do something really hard for God. See, Jesus' request to be glorified by the Father is a request to do what is right, which the Father always does, to point to Jesus for our sake, to point to Jesus as the light of the world, the divine word of God, the Son of God, the only Savior of the created universe. And since God is righteous, he always does what is right, he loves to exalt his Son. He loves to exalt Jesus, and he points to Jesus for the sake of his glory and for the sake of our joy in that we can know this Jesus and be saved by this Jesus. It's incredible. So what this forces you and me to do today is to get off the fence. Do you believe today that Jesus is God's son like he says? Or do you believe he was a liar? Do you believe he was crazy? Jesus' words about himself don't let you be indecisive about him. Who do you say he is? He says, believe me and be saved. And there's another aspect of his words here that is very important and very wonderful. Notice who Jesus is primarily concerned about being glorified by. God the Father. And notice who Jesus is not primarily concerned about being glorified by. Humanity. You and me. Jesus doesn't pray, dear Father, please make this world lift me up and exalt me and validate that I am the most wonderful treasure in the universe. Now, everybody who has ever lived will someday do this, okay? We will glorify Jesus for who he is. At that point, not all, obviously not all will be saved. It will be too late for many. And the fact that humanity will glorify Jesus, though, is of secondary importance to Jesus, that's why earlier in John, Jesus said he doesn't seek the world's glory. He rebukes the Pharisees because what they want more than anything is to be glorified by men. Jesus knew that humanity's opinion of him was not what mattered most. It was God the Father's opinion of him that mattered most. It was not human validation or glory that Jesus sought. He was seeking the validation and the glory that comes from God the Father. Because at the end of the day, 
it did not matter whether humanity recognized his worth. It only mattered that the Father recognized his worth. Is this what's most important to you? Is your primary concern to worship the Father and to be honored by him? Or is your primary concern to be worshiped by other people and to be honored by other people? Because what I found in this world, both as a Christian and as a pastor, is that you can't have both. You cannot have the glory of the world and, you, and the glory of God at the same time. And that means that when people make fun of you for being a Christian, remember that their honor of you does not really matter. What matters is that God honors you as a gift of his grace. Not because you're worthy, but because he's gracious. When you have to make a hard decision in your life, when you're trying to obey God in your life in the decision, and you know that man, people are not going to be happy if I make this decision. But you pray about it. You seek godly counsel. You walk by the Spirit. You're walking in alignment with God's Word. You do what you believe is right in the eyes of God. It is very possible you will be attacked and abandoned by other people and even other Christians. But at the end of the day, if you're submitting to God's Word, if you're submitting to His Spirit, if you're not making quick decisions, but you're making prayerful, Spirit-led decisions with the help of godly counselors, then you can sleep well at night. Okay? It doesn't matter if other people attack you. It hurts. But what matters way more is that you seek to honor the Lord. And he will honor you and he will vindicate you because you are in Christ. And he has given you a heart that cares about his glory more than the world's glory. Be careful. Be careful if you are seeking to have other people on Facebook tell you that you are valuable. It happens all the time. Be careful if you are seeking to have other people at your workplace tell you that you're valuable, you're impressive, you're important, you've done amazing things. Be careful if you are seeking to have your accomplishments give you your value and your worth. Those things aren't necessarily bad, but they can be. What matters way more than being honored by the world is being honored by God. And so seek his glory, and he will honor you if you're in Christ. And he honors us not because, get this, not because we earn his honor or because we deserve his honor, but because he graciously honors all who belong to him through faith. It's because of his grace. Wow. And so Jesus asked God the Father to lift him up, to honor him, to make his name famous, to point out to all of us that Jesus alone is worthy of our worship and of our lives. Jesus said, God, I want you to tell the world that this is what you think about me. And we read at the very end of John 17, 1, that Jesus prays that the, he prays that the Father will do this so that he might what? Glorify the Father. And so the Father glorifies his son Jesus for being our Savior who completed the work of salvation for all peoples, 
through uh, his perfect life, his substitutionary death for sinners, his victorious resurrection. And at the same time, Jesus lifts up and points to the Father and exalts the Father as the one true Father of the universe who is the definition of love and justice who is holiness and purity and sovereignty and grace and who has compassion for sinners and rescues them from the darkness. And so as the Father glorifies the Son by lifting him up and as the Son glorifies the Father by lifting him up, they are in doing this acting unbelievably gracious toward you and to me because they show it to us. They're showing you and me what we need most in our lives. We need God. We need a friendship with this God who is so glorious that even the things he's created in nature astound us. Even these things that he's created, these are finite things, the cascades. I mean, the, there's a verse in the Bible that says all the islands, they're a dust. They're dust to God. But God, his glory is unlimited. It's infinite. And he came to earth in the person of Jesus to offer us infinite forgiveness, to offer us infinite friendship with himself so that we might enjoy his infinite glory and grace forever. Wow. So hear this. God is extremely concerned about the glory of his name. And that is not egotistical at all. It is righteous and wonderful and jaw-dropping. And the fact that he has revealed that to us so that we might know him forever is the most superlative act of compassion and grace our universe has ever known. So let's turn to him and trust him. We're going to take communion together to celebrate this awesome God. I want to read a passage first, and then I'll pray for us. This passage fits with everything Jesus says in today's passage. Philippians 2, 5 to 11. Many of you listen to, know this. Listen for the humiliation of Jesus and then the exaltation of Jesus to the glory of God the Father. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for this awesome news. And wow, help us just to soak on this this week, God, and just to see how merciful you are in glorifying yourself. Thank you for inviting us to pray to you, for commanding us to pray to you for our own good. And be with us now, Lord, as we celebrate your communion and what you've done for those of us who trust in you by uniting us to yourself through your death and resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen.